Welcome to The Great Reset, a podcast that looks at building a fairer, stronger, smarter world after COVID-19. This week, in a special episode, we'll look at how a country like the United States can use foreign policy to shape the global recovery. We need to take back into our minds the importance of a globalized world and the importance of global solutions to global problems. In this episode, I talk to members of the World Economic Forum's U.S. Global Future Council. Global Future Councils at the Forum convene on a number of topics, from clean air to cryptocurrency, and they draw from a wide network of thought leaders from academia, government, business, and civil society. The United States Global Future Council is a group of foreign policy experts who have met throughout the past year to discuss the principles that might guide foreign policy over the next decade. I caught up with a few to learn how U.S. foreign policy could shape the global recovery. And in this podcast, a few of their members give us a sampling of recommendations for how the U.S. can deploy both its thought leadership and its resources for the global good. Their thoughts go beyond the politics of the recent years, looking from a 50,000-foot view at what major principles will drive decision-making in the years ahead. We have great opportunities if we're able to get away from TikTok, Twitter, our own front yard, and focus a little bit on people who actually have needs. That's what the international community is about serving. Subscribe to The Great Reset on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review us. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum, and this is The Great Reset. In one of my first interviews with members of the Global Futures Council, the GFC, I talked to Dan Dresner, a professor of international politics at Tufts University. He explained how he believes that the very American idea of a more perfect union, one enshrined in the U.S. Constitution, could be an important touchstone in the effort to continually push for something better, both domestically and internationally. Here's Dan explaining more. I really do think this is a debate that can genuinely, hopefully, bridge partisan divides to ask, what is it about the United States that actually does make us unique. What are the elements of, de- you know, of, of, of democracy promotion that only the United States can pursue? Um, what makes us unique in that regard? And, you know, I do think there are some things we can draw on, you know, among others, you know, and this goes back to the preamble of the Constitution, but basically the idea of building a more perfect union. That is a lovely phrase. Um, because a, a more perfect union implies we are far from perfect now, but we can build back better. We can improve things over time. And in some ways, I do think that is the best element of the American narrative and the thing that does make American exceptionalism still, you know, something that has intellectual purchase, which is not, we were always a great country and, you know, we're just, it, it's a record of unblemished greatness. It's that, thank God, our founders had some truly visionary ideas that even if they didn't live up to in practice, cemented them to the point that our country is, you know, always felt compelled to move forward as an effort to live up to those ideals. While it's still imperfect, um, you know, those ideals still have power and we need to pursue them both domestically and internationally. I also talked with Danielle Pletka, a senior vice president at the public policy think tank, the American Enterprise Institute. She explained that there's an opportunity for democracy to stand up against corruption during the crisis. Here's Danielle. Corruption enables everything else that is bad. Leaders stealing from their own people and then working with criminal gangs who steal and oppress others in order to have more money. 
criminal gangs working with terrorist organizations to find avenues of access to finance to finance their terrorism. Okay? And if we, if we were more vigilant, if we were more willing to stand up on these issues, I think we would see real change in people's lives because the, the knock-on effects of this corruption the knock-on effects of this nexus between the corrupt, the criminal, the, the, the dictatorial, and the terroristic are, uh, are staggering. All of these things are opportunities for us to do better. And if we are able to do better, to change the lives of not just hundreds of millions of people, but even billions of people, you know, we have great opportunities if we're able to get away from, you know, TikTok, Twitter, our own front yard, and uh, and focus a little bit on people who actually have needs. That's what the international community is about serving. And by the way, reminding our own people that when we serve them, when they are at peace, we are safer and richer and happier. She also feels there's a wider opportunity to galvanize the U.S. public more effectively through an often overlooked option, better civics education. Danielle explains. The single simplest answer, and it's education about the real world. It's ending the politicization of education and teaching actual history. You know, my kids barely learn about the Holocaust in school, and they go to good schools. They barely learn about the Cold War. Understanding what freedom is doesn't come by magic. Civics is not just going out and marching. It's also about standing up for values and principles that we hold dear and doing it on a global stage as well. And, you know, too often we are tweeters rather than actors. I talked in depth with former Ambassador Tom Shannon, the U.S. Global Futures Council chair. Tom has decades of diplomatic and government experience and served as the Undersecretary for Political Affairs at the State Department, basically the third ranking position in the United States Department of State. Here's Ambassador Shannon on the unique opportunity for the U.S. to bring solutions to the converging crises of the pandemic, the economy, and the climate. Point number one, this virus is not going away anytime soon. And that therefore, the process of developing vaccines and treatments is going to be a very big deal in terms of attempting to stabilize our our national economies and our global economies, but then also create a base upon which we can begin to grow again. And this is actually where the inequalities that have presented themselves through the pandemic are going to become even more sharply etched for many people. And it's a huge opportunity for the United States to pick up a role that it has abjured during the first part of of this crisis. In other words, as a convoker and a convener of other nations and developing global processes that ensure that there is going to be fairness as we advance, because that sense of fairness, that sense of justice as vaccines and treatments are presented, will um, resonate, I think, in a very powerful way throughout the world, in either a positive or a negative way. And if they sense that it's not, I would not underestimate the resentment and the anger that, that is produced. Our globalized world is being defined in many ways by, by this pandemic. So that's point number one. Point number two, of course, has to do with the economic build back which is going to be significant. And it's not something the United States can finance, and it's not something our markets can absorb by themselves. 
but we can play a very important role in shaping how the world economically revitalizes itself. And then I think the third point is to recognize that in many ways, what we're seeing is a convergence of crises because we have not only the pandemic, but we have a climate crisis, which is significant. Here in the United States, we see in storms on our Gulf Coast and wildfires in California and Oregon, the immediate and tangible impact of climate change. And other crises will converge. There will be other health concerns arising. There will be other threats of pandemic. There will be issues related to terrorism and national security. And therefore, focusing on the capability of countries to work together in anticipating these additional crises and their convergence is going to be, I think, very important. It's going to test the statesmanship and the global vision of many countries. The former ambassador also explained what needs to change in order for us to really start making an impact. First, there is a mindset change. In many ways, tracing the virus uh, really traces the extent to which we are connected. And the fact that the world has seen the, this virus in nearly every corner shows just how dramatically globalized it is. And therefore, in that environment, it's foolish to think that we can resolve this through individual state actions. And we're seeing instances now in which countries that actually did quite well at the beginning of the pandemic are now finding themselves in a difficult place or began badly, improved, and now find themselves in a bad situation again. And I really do think that this, if nothing else, is a clear indicator that we need to take back into our minds the importance of a globalized world and the importance of globalized solutions or global solutions to global problems. And once again, that means connecting countries, connecting people, convening and, and convoking. That's the first point, mind, the change of mindset. The second point is we have the mechanisms necessary to bring people together and to address these problems. We have it in, a, in the formal structure of the UN, but for those who are uncomfortable with the World Health Organization or other aspects of the UN, we also have the G20 process, we have the G7 process, we have any number of, of platforms that, that we can use almost immediately to address these problems. And the former ambassador also explained how the U.S. can use its voice to ensure projects get the capital that they need to succeed. Well, to begin with, I, I think that the, the large multilateral development banks and the uh, International Monetary Fund um, are going to have to play a big role in this. Uh, because again, the, the fiscal challenges that many countries are going to face will be huge. I talked about the G20, I talked about G7, I talked about these other institutions or, or platforms that countries can use to, to begin to shape a, a global consensus and a global purpose. But the instruments of a lot of this are going to be our multilateral development banks, uh, both global and regional. And, and therefore, I, I think a lot of focus has to be put in to make sure that they're capitalized, that they have the right policy tools, and that they have the kind of political decision-making uh, capability that will be necessary to respond. When it comes to global institutions, Ambassador Shannon explained that the U.S. can play a key role in conversations, but that real change is going to come from many visionary leaders working together. I think so much depends on 
how we work ourselves out of this crisis, you know, because we're at a moment in which global governance is becoming harder and harder because of the nature of the problems that we're facing, but also because of the way in which the world is changing. And because many of this, our structures of global governance were created, you know, 70 years ago and created in a very different world and therefore have to adjust and have to renew themselves in ways to accommodate rising powers throughout the globe and drawing people in and convincing him that there's this a, a purpose and a reason to, 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 to work together. Um, and and in, in this regard, again, I think the United States can play a very important role in, in opening a larger discussion, but it can't do it by itself. Um, it's going to need in this sense, some very visionary and far-reaching statesmanship elsewhere in the world, whether it be from countries that are anticipating playing a very important role in the 21st century, like China and India, or countries that uh, are determined not to be overwhelmed um, by the crises that we face uh, and are looking for a way to establish their own strategic autonomy, like the European Union, In five years, Ambassador Shannon explains there's a chance that we'll be working with international institutions in a very different way than today. He explains more. These are, to a certain extent, threadbare institutions and require some beefing up and some renovation. But we're also at a period of time in which, because of fraying global relations, you see this especially in the trading environment, a kind of an emergence of economic nationalism and the the degradation. Of, of a global trading system. And, and that has to stop. I mean, we have to find a way to, to convince people that all pursuing their individual interests somehow magically and wonderfully presents a, a better world. It doesn't. It creates for uh, a lot of mean-spiritedness. It creates for a lot of conflict and confrontation and tension and worse. I, I would argue that we, we really need uh, to find a way now to re-articulate a, a larger vision of global social cohesion, using our economy and using our, our trading mechanisms to push this forward. If you look at what happened in the immediate aftermath of, of the Great Depression, looking at the economic destruction, and then looking into Europe and seeing rising fascism, Franklin Roosevelt announced a good neighbor policy in our hemisphere. Our troops were pulled out of all foreign lands in our hemisphere in the Americas. We committed ourselves through the Pan-American Union and eventually the Organization of American States to non-intervention in the affairs of other people, to self-determination of peoples, to any number of treaty devices that became very important to establishing the regional bodies and engagement. But then Secretary of State Cordell Hull began negotiating trading agreements with all the large economies of, of our hemisphere, because he knew that the only way out of, of this depression was through economic growth and through trade and through investment. And I would argue we need a similar vision today. We really do need somebody who understands that now is the time to revive uh, our flagging trading institutions to drive trade and investment agreements, uh, and then to use those to begin to fashion political agreements and political understandings. This is really a moment where political leadership is important and where the, the value of these kinds of agreements has to be explained once again to people. Former Ambassador Shannon believes that a better world in 2030 is more than possible, but will depend on coping with the current crisis and preventing ones to come. Here's what he had to say about what will happen if everything goes right. Well, first of all, if we do everything right, that's a remarkable accomplishment. 
and statues should be built to all the people who were uh, involved in, in making that happen. But let me put it this way. You know, there are a lot of people who look out in the world right now and, and they see things very darkly. They see a very complicated, conflictive relationship between the United States and China. They see rising regional powers um, with global ambitions, you, you name it. Um, they see the virus running wild. They see its economic impact. And they really wonder, you know, what this century is going to look like. But I would argue that if you kind of peel that away and look at what's happening broadly in our societies today, look at what's the incredible innovation that's happening in economies, through science and technology, the connectivity that's being developed. We're really, I believe, on, on the cusp of major breakthroughs from everything from artificial intelligence to life sciences to informatics to communications and, and data processing that are going to, if, if managed in the right way, qualitatively improve people's lives mm-hmm. and probably extend them in ways that human beings never thought possible. But in order for that to happen, we have to keep the peace. We have to make sure that there's not devastating regional or global conflict And we have to deal with these crises as they present themselves to us, whether it be this pandemic, whether it be climate change, whether it be whatever is coming down the pike at us. And it's not like we don't know what they are. This pandemic has been announced. It was announced, you know, at the beginning of this century. Um, You know, if if you look at, at each significant epidemic that we faced, Um, from Ebola to H1N1 to avian flu to MERS to SARS to to you name it. This is a train that has been coming down the track. And the fact that that we're not ready for it is shame on us. So we we should understand and know what they are and be prepared to respond to them. And so I think that if we can do that, we we could really be in a remarkable period of, of human history. Of course, should things not go perfectly over the next 10 years, Ambassador Shannon says it's possible that economic islands develop around the globe. He explains what those are and why that's a fate we should try hard to resist. I think we've become very defensive uh, in terms of uh, how we manage our, our global relations. We would become very concerned about supply chains especially supply chains related to pharmaceutical goods and personal protective gear and everything related to to pandemics. And we would be looking for ways really to pull our supply chains out of countries that we found either unreliable or unresponsive to us and either bring them into the United States or nearshore them in countries that that we, we, we thought we had a, enough of a relationship with that, that we would be able to guarantee access to, to, to what it is we need. And that would, that would end up creating a, not necessarily a spheres of influence world, but really a world divided into economic islands in which large economic powers would treat a, a, a region as kind of part of its kind of warehouse or where it would keep most of it, the, the things that it needed for, for its economy. And for me, that would, you know, significantly slow down uh, a lot of the kinds of technological uh, advances that I was talking about earlier 
and limit the, the ability of the United States and other countries uh, in, in the world to generate the kind of change that we had hoped for. During this time of uncertainty, Ambassador Shannon also suggested a book he recommends that can give anyone comfort regarding our prospects of navigating these very unique times. I'm a big fan of the memoirs of Dean Acheson, who was the Secretary of State during the presidency of Harry Truman, who played a central role in building all of the post-World War II global structures. And the book is called Present at the Creation. Uh, It's a big book. It's got a lot of history in it that not everybody can deal with. But if you read the first couple of chapters and the last couple of chapters, what you'll get is what it was like to try to build something new out of the ashes of World War II. And what was striking for me is that Atchison said that the statesman that worked on that issue had several qualities, and he, he described them as boundless energy, determination to be successful, and near-complete ignorance of the challenge that they faced. And as he writes about the early years of of this process, in other words, the late 1940s and 1950s, he describes it as as kind of navigating through fog, of really not understanding, first of all, the extent of the destruction that was done uh, during World War II, or just how to go about rebuilding. And it was all done kind of incidentally, but with a, a, a larger strategic purpose. And, you know, I I really think in some ways we're going to have an opportunity to rebuild the way that Atchison and and the Allies did in the aftermath of of World War II. But I think we have the same level of energy and the same boundless determination. But I would argue that we're not ignorant. I would argue that we have a pretty clear idea of what it is we need to do. And so um, I I think if, if for no other reason than to be inspired, reading Atchison's memoirs could be very, very helpful. That was former Ambassador Tom Shannon. And for more recommendations from the U.S. Global Futures Council, simply go online where we've collected a range of thoughts from each of the members and a special compendium on weforum.org. Before we go, don't forget to check out a special edition of the Great Reset podcast featuring jobs and the economy. Here's a sneak preview about how the COVID crisis has devastated women's employment and why a true recovery can't leave women behind. Each week, the Great Reset podcast looks at building a better, fairer, smarter world after COVID-19, and four special episodes feature daily coverage of our Jobs Reset Summit and interviews with top leaders on tackling global employment problems, including topics such as education and the economy. Here's UN Women Executive Director Fumzile Nulambu Guka on equity, inclusion, and how the pandemic has pulled women out of the labor market. The majority of the people who have lost jobs are women. The ILO estimates that uh, two-thirds of the jobs that will be lost and not recovered are women's jobs. She reminds us that if key steps aren't taken, some women might never return to the office. And we say that women can also work from home. We must not find a situation where it's only women who will end up working from home uh, because they have to do the home work as well as the office work in the home so that uh, offices can just be in another locker room, the places where men only go. That's a highlight from our special four-part series on jobs and the economy from The Great Reset. Get that and all of our World Economic Forum podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other top platforms. My thanks go to Robin Pomeroy, Gareth Nolan, Anna Bruce Lockhart, Mark Jones, Paul Smike, Marion Shiv, and Jackson Spivy for all of their help in the production of this special episode. Thanks also goes to our guests, Daniel Jersner, Danielle Pletka, 
and Ambassador Shannon. Thanks for you for listening. Please rate and review our podcasts and find more expansive Q&As from our guests online at wef.ch slash podcasts. And follow us online on social media on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, and on Twitter using the handle at WEF. That's it for now. I'm Linda Lucina at the World Economic Forum. Have a great day.